As we come now to God's word, would you turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read along with me, to the book of Esther in the Old Testament, in chapter 7. That's Esther in chapter 7. If you're reading out of the Pew Bible, the translation's slightly different than mine, but it's essentially the same. And as you turn there, would you pray with me? Our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts now to see by that light? Would you help us to walk by that light, to really follow after you, our God? Guide us by your spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Esther in chapter 7. I want to read here the, the whole chapter. It's just 10 verses, but we'll read in Esther chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. So the king and Haman went into a feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What's your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What, what's your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. This is God's word. 
If you've been here with us over the past several weeks, you know that we've uh, been journeying through the book of Esther. We have just a few more weeks left. Here we are in chapter 7. And this scene here in chapter 7 is one of the most dramatic scenes of all of the events of Esther. In fact, perhaps the most dramatic one. You'll remember that back in chapter 4, Esther's cousin, Mordecai, who was sort of her adopted father, Esther's parents had died, so Mordecai had taken care of her, uh, had approached Esther and said the very famous line in Esther, uh, perhaps you have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. Because the kingdom, the Jews in the kingdom, had been uh, decreed for destruction at the hand of Haman. So in other words, uh, Mordecai says, Esther, God is going to use you for his good and wise purposes. And he's going to rescue his people, the Jews, from this day of genocide. And so recently, then, Esther has now come to the king to ask for his help in doing this, in rescuing her people, the Jews. And so she invites him to a feast. And at that feast, I don't know if it's because she chickened out or if she had other reasons there, uh, she says at the end of that feast, what's your request? And she says, another feast. Come back tomorrow, there'll be a second feast. And, and so, so they come. Here we are then at this second feast. And at, at this feast, she invites the king and Haman, the one who uh, stirred up this decree of destruction for the Jews. And I wonder what that table was like for Esther. I mean, here she is, sitting and having a meal with Haman. She's sharing a table with her very enemy, the one who wants her dead. Now, he doesn't know that she's Jewish. It says that earlier in Esther. She's kept her heritage secret, uh, but, but she knows So this is like a Jew sitting down to have dinner with Hitler. What was that? What was that like for her? At any rate, at the end of it, the king finally says, Esther, what's your request? Please tell me. And finally, she comes out with it. And you can imagine maybe the shock of both men, the king and Haman, when she finally reveals her request. She says, I and my people have been sold. And she says it very strongly three times. It's very punchy. We're sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And you can hear that the king's kind of taken aback when he first hears that. He goes, who? Who is it? Who did this? You know, sort of a, you know, ah, let, let me at him kind of thing. Where is he with no idea that that man is sitting there at the table? I wonder did Haman realize at this moment that she's talking about him? But finally, the queen says, a foe, an enemy, he's here, he's sitting at this table, it's that man, Haman. And it doesn't say that she pointed her finger at him, but, you know, in my head, I think that's how it went, that she, she finally stuck her finger out and said, he did this. It's a very intense moment. Um, I, I almost don't recognize Esther here. She seems like a very different lady from the Esther that we meet at the beginning of the book, a young girl who just kind of does what she's told. At any rate, now everything is out on the table. 
And the responses of the two men are exactly what we might expect Haman, when all of it's out, uh, it says, was, was terrified. And the king is full of wrath. He's furious. In fact, he's so angry that it says, and this makes sense at least to me, he's so mad, I need to leave the room for a moment. And he steps out in the garden. Maybe you know what that's like. <laughs> Uh, so uh, when the king then returns back to the situation, what does he find but Haman now on his knees, groveling at Esther's dining couch, pleading for mercy from her. And the king says, what, what are you doing? What are you doing grabbing at my wife, the queen for that matter? And that's it. That's the last straw. And so they cover Haman's face and they deliver him over to death. He's hanged on the gallows or the stake that he'd prepared for someone else. And just like that, Haman is gone. Done. Out of the story. The foe, that wicked man, that persecutor of the Jews, is dead. And even though the threat for the Jews as a whole is not over, for just a moment, Esther is delivered. That's our theme for this week. You know that we're working through the themes of Esther. This uh, week we'll focus on the theme of deliverance in Esther. It's a major theme for the whole of the book. If you read it all the way to the end, you can if you want. You've got Bibles, I'm sure, at home. Uh, you know that at, by the end of the book of Esther, all of the Jews are delivered from destruction by God, at least in their physical lives. And when they are delivered, of course, there's a big celebration, a holiday around it. And that's a major theme. Deliverance is a major theme then in the, in the whole Bible, we know this, and we're, we're actually called to look for deliverance from God, to actually seek after God's deliverance. And deliverance will come from the Lord. It's a good thing for us to seek this deliverance. In fact, Jesus encourages us to do this. We do this very often, at least once a week, maybe more at home on your own. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, you'll remember the very last request. You know, the, one of the last lines is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the reason why we can ask that is because of the last line, because yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All of it is yours. We know this, and so we have confidence then to ask for deliverance from you, God. We know that he can, and he's promised that he will. So the book of Esther uh, is part of the whole of that, that it's encouraging us to seek God in deliverance. So even in the hardest times, in fact, in Nazi concentration camps, uh, the book of Esther specifically was banned. You could probably see why. Um, but, but many of the Jews in those camps committed the text of Esther to memory. And some of them even dared to write it down, and they would read it together uh, especially during their holiday of Purim, which comes from the book of Esther. 
uh, because those Jews knew that their source of hope is in seeing God, the deliverer, remembering that God delivers his people. This is true. We can hang our hat on that. Now, Knowing all of these things, sometimes, okay, God is a deliverer. Yes, I know this. Nathan, you're not telling me anything new. Uh, Some people, at this point, some might ask the question, but Nathan, why does the Lord need to deliver us at all? In other words, what I mean by that is, why does the Lord not get rid of evil to begin with? so that there's no need for deliverance in the first place. So why did God allow Haman to have access to the decrees of the Persian king? Why did God allow Haman to be promoted in the Persian court? For that matter, why did God allow Haman to be born at all? Couldn't God have ended this trouble before it even started? Couldn't God have ended my trouble before it even started? And this wrestle can lead some some of us, sometimes myself included, to doubt, to question the power of God or the goodness of God, or maybe both. And so some, there's a mystery in, the, in, in all of this. Why would God even not crush this to begin with? And, and some try to answer it just very shortly by just saying, well, because free will. As if that somehow answers everything and fixes it all, but it doesn't. First of all, the Bible does not answer it quite so tidily that way. And the, that does not solve the problem for us anyway. So can't God overcome or at least influence human decision? Couldn't God, you know, nudge, the, nudge them in a certain direction? And couldn't God encourage the king to, to say no to Haman's request to destroy the Jews? I mean, why doesn't God put some handwriting on the wall? Or, or, or maybe God could send some fire down out of heaven? Or, or maybe he'll send a prophet to really tell them a thing or two? Or, or maybe God could open up the skies and, and, and show his very self in a blinding appearance and say, Haman, Haman, why have you persecuted me? We know that God has done all of these things at certain times. Why doesn't, why doesn't he do one of these things? Just do, do, do something here to stop all of this. The truth is that God is able to overcome even our will. We actually need this to be the case. We want this to be the case that God can overcome our will because we know that our own wills are unruly. We don't always do the things that we want or know that we ought. So as we're wrestling against Sin and trying to pursue by grace the Lord's holiness. We sin. And then we might think, why did I do that? 
why did I say that? Why, why did I think that? Have I become that? And so we, we, we pray, Lord, save me, deliver me from even myself, deliver me from my own will, deliver me from my own desires. We need Jesus to do what we cannot do on our own. We know that the greatest deliverance in the entire Bible is accomplished in Jesus on the cross, that really for all who believe and trust in him by faith, Jesus delivers a believer from the power of sin and death. It's not that we won't sin, but that sin is no longer our master. Jesus delivers us then even from the righteous wrath of God and moves us into true life, life with a capital L. But we know, we know that we're like Esther, at least in some ways. We need the deliverance of God, not only from people like Haman, uh, not only for our physical lives, but we need deliverance from things like our own fear. We need deliverance from perhaps timidity. We need deliverance from our own disobedience, deliverance from anxiety, deliverance from, from unbelief. We know that we need this. But that still leaves the question, why would God not fix all of this before it even needs fixing. Lord, why don't you fix me before I get broke? I know the grammar's wrong there. It's all right. You get the feeling, though, right? It, it can be frustrating. There's, as we wrestle with this, now, the answer, there is an answer here there's, there's, to a degree. There's some mystery in God's good wisdom, places that he does not allow us to go or does not tell us. But God does give us clues to this in, in his word especially in the greatest deliverance in the Old Testament, which is, which is the Exodus, when God brings his people out of Egypt. You'll remember uh, long before, so, you know, it's very famous. There was even a movie made about it with, you know, Moses and let my people go and all those things. But long before God's people were even in Egypt, God had made a promise to Abraham what we call a covenant, a binding promise to him that, that uh, the Lord would be his God. Abraham and his people would be the Lord's people. He would make them into a great nation, and they would be a blessing to the nations. And the Lord was going to bring Abraham and the rest of God's people into the promised land and give them rest. And as he's making this uh, promise to Abraham, he says this. This is in Genesis Chapter 15, there are several spots where the covenant is mentioned, but in Genesis 15, starting in verse 12, the Lord uh, says these things. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out 
with great possessions. The Lord is telling them beforehand that they will spend 400 years as slaves in Egypt. And it's not because he's looking into a crystal ball there. It's not just that the Lord is peeking into the future. The Lord is actually saying, this is how I will work out my purposes. So just as the Lord had raised up Haman and then raised up Esther to deliver the people from Haman and Persia, the Lord had raised up Pharaoh and would, deli- would, would raise up Moses to deliver the people from Pharaoh in Egypt. So the people are enslaved, you know, the rest of the story, the people are enslaved for 400 years in, in, in Egypt, and then God finally sends Moses to deliver them. The famous line, let my people go so that we may worship the Lord. And Pharaoh says, no. In fact, not only will I not let you go, you people are lazy. So all the bricks that you have to make, I'm not going to let you have any straw anymore. You have to find your own straw to make the same number of bricks. He makes their work harder. And so, of course, then the Jews, the people of God, rise up not against Pharaoh, but against Moses for coming in to deliver them. They say uh, this happens then in Exodus chapter 5. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. You can hear his wrestle in there. He says, Lord, come on. Why would you deliver like this? this? Not only is this not a deliverance, you made our work harder. And then after this, the Lord speaks. These are the next lines, starting Exodus chapter 6 and verse 1. This is the Lord speaking now. Please listen. Exodus 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, a land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God 
who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You can see the result there of what's going to happen in the outplay of all that happens there in Egypt. He says, you will see what I do. And then you will know that I am the Lord. In fact, that line, then you will know that I am the Lord, is repeated throughout the ten plagues. It's a refrain that runs through it very often. That you will know that I'm the Lord, that I am God. In other words, through this hardship, I will open your eyes so that you can see me. To know, to really know the Lord is the most important thing in all of life. It is more important than freedom from hardship in the first place. And sometimes it takes hardship to get us there. I wonder then if we, if we see our afflictions like this, if we see our afflictions as things that God would use to bring us to himself, that they may actually be part of God's expression of his kindness to us, of his care for us, of his love, for us. Imagine an alternate scene in Esther. I know this is hypothetical, and so sometimes hypotheticals are not helpful, so you bear with me for a moment. Let's imagine that Esther played out very differently than it did, that the events of chapter one never happened, that Queen Vashti, the original queen in Persia under King Ahasuerus, is still queen that instead of being tossed out of the court and, and replaced by Esther, she still reigns with him. And then Esther is not taken into the harem of the king. And then Haman does not have a run-in with Mordecai. And the de decree of destruction for the Jews never happens. That'd be good, right? No decree of destruction. So, so maybe in that scene, again, this is all hypothetical, maybe Mordecai and Esther, you know, buy, buy a house in a nice, a nice Persian neighborhood. Maybe they settle down and they get jobs that they love. They, they find a really great, they each find a really great spouse uh, and they, they have kids. They get, have kids that are on the honor roll and win all the FFA prizes and, and, and become star soccer players. And, and, and Esther and Mordecai and their families participate in neighborhood events and they give back to their community. It is possible in the midst of all these good things that they would forget God. Or worse, even more frightening, that they would just miss God altogether. In this imaginary scene, they may not need deliverance from a decree of destruction, but they would still need deliverance. 
they would need to be delivered from something far worse, to be delivered from their own complacency. Because sometimes the things that look like success are actually just stagnation. I wonder how many people who are living the good life have no clue that they don't really know the Lord, have no idea how much they really need Jesus, and have no sense of trust and satisfaction in God. Oh Lord, keep us from that. We need and want a type of deliverance that would draw us to God. Even if, for a while, that deliverance may take us under a threat of destruction, may cause us to sit at a table with our enemies, may bring us to walk in the valley of the shadow of death. These are hard things. But it's a common experience for a Christian. Paul talks about this. This is the last place we'll go if your stomach's grumbling. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul's own experience here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8, he writes this. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. In other words, Paul says that the deliverance of God is not without pain. It's not without hardship. But it will help us to endure that pain and hardship. And in the process, it will begin to shape us as God draws us to himself. You can hear the effect of this. There's a a new reliance produced in Paul that we were taught not to rely on ourselves, but on God, who's actually a better reliant one because he can raise from the dead. It actually produces in us persistent prayer to call out to God. It produces thankfulness to God. And it causes us to hope in God to deliver us again. Because we do need deliverance again and again and again and again. But we know that the hope of God does not disappoint. 
for Esther at this moment where we are in chapter 7. She's delivered from Haman. The agent who had decreed destruction is now gone. He's dead. But the threat of the decree still remains in effect. She still needs deliverance. And a bigger deliverance. We'll see how that plays out in these final chapters. But no matter how big the threat, we know that our God is much bigger still. And he is mighty to deliver and to draw us to himself. Let us hope in God. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we need your help even to hope in you. In the midst of trouble, would you stir us to call upon you, to come to you, draw us near by faith and repentance. Lord, would you be our help and our deliverer? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.